Welcome to the Trajectory Africa. In this episode, track four, our guest artist is Abeowa Obasiki. Abeowa is a consultant at Steers Data, a division of Steers Business. Steer's mission is to make it easy for anyone, anywhere in the world, to access high-quality information and data on Africa. Abeowa currently focuses on delivering insights to, for, and about Nigeria's technology and innovation ecosystem. Prior to Steer's, she was a strategy consultant advising clients in the UK across multiple sectors, such as banking, telecoms, and consumer goods. In the previous episode with Jay Kendall, we talked about sizing African markets, digital commerce, and how to enable consumption by raising incomes. Given how often Nigeria is touted for its huge population and consumption potential, it was only fitting to take the conversation to Africa's giant. In exploring the consumption landscape in Nigeria, Abeo and I chatted about how and why Steers aspires to be the Bloomberg of Africa, how constraints reduce the size of a 200 million person market, how informal SMEs are the new B2B market, how to enable Nigerian consumers and assess their consumption readiness, and finally, how fintech facilitates business and consumption. As Steers puts it, in God we trust, but everyone else must bring data. That's certainly true of this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Abeyua, welcome to the Trajectory Africa. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm really excited about this conversation because it's an excellent continuation of the exploration of African consumer markets that started with the previous track. In that episode with Jay Kendall, we discussed digital commerce and the size and characteristics of African consumer markets. And today we're going to chat about the size of B2B and B2C markets in Nigeria, the key indicators of consumption readiness, and take a closer look at how fintech serves as an enabler of consumption, digital commerce, and Nigeria's digital economy as a whole. So let's jump in. Obewa, you and I met virtually anyway for the first time when your team reached out to Osaruman and me, and I'm talking about Osaruman Osamui of the subtext and more recently Facebook, to chat about Chasing Outliers, a report on early stage investing in Africa we co-published with Tony Chen of Kinyangu Ventures and Verdant Frontiers in January. And we had a really good conversation and it provided a really unique opportunity for me to meet you and the team and to learn about Steers firsthand. But of course, there's always more to learn, which is a great place to start this conversation. Insofar as I understand it, Steers Nigeria has one of the best taglines I've ever heard. In God we trust, everyone else must bring data. <laughs> so with that call to action as a backdrop, can you share what problems Steers was founded to solve and why this tagline represents what you do? And what does it mean to aspire to be the Bloomberg of Africa and why do you do so? Yeah, of course. So Steers has quite a long history that dates back to when the founders, so Preston, Abdul, Bode and Michael, were in university in London. And it actually started when Abdul was trying to invest in the Nigerian Stock Exchange. He couldn't find enough information on his own to be able to make any informed decisions about these investments. So he then turned to Bloomberg, where he found good information, but there wasn't enough on Africa in particular. And in order to make these investments, he then needed to go through a stockbroker. And around the same time, Preston had developed an interest in media. And with this, you know, drive for financial information and data coming from Abdul and the interest in media coming from Preston, that's what then made Bloomberg the clear aspiration or the clear model to look for. So the founders, they actually looked to build out the media business first. And this was in order to be able to establish a strong brand reputation, because if you're looking to 
be a platform where people come to you for data and information and insights, then they need to be able to trust you. And they did this by wanting to keep they wanted to keep costs low and quality high. So they reached out to a number of other people that they knew, either peers in universities or other people, just really smart people that they knew that were also interested in disseminating information and insights on Africa and created a community of voluntary contributors called the Writers Network. And so this is what Steers was for the first few years. It was the Writers Network bringing together really smart people to share their insights on Africa. However, there was a bit of a big development with the elections a few years ago, where Steers decided that they wanted to do something impactful for the elections. And what they then decided to do was to publish real-time election results and an election site, which required about six months of prep, a lot of volunteers as well. And this helped to propel steers into the eyes of the general public in Nigeria. It established them as a force to be reckoned with when it came to the research and data stage. And after this, Steer started getting a lot more requests to do bespoke data related work. And this was the push that we got to provide advisory services. And so with that, we had the media business advisory services, but in the background, still having this product aspiration and goal, which is to provide this high quality raw data as well. So that's how we got to the three different areas of steers that we are working on now. And more recently, we've honed in on a focus on the digital economy for a few reasons. So we noticed that we started to get a lot more requests, particularly towards like the second half of last year on research and advisory services related to the innovation ecosystem. And this presented an opportunity. So the digital economy in Africa and Nigeria is getting a lot of attention as a key enabler for development right now. And it's a bit of a blank box for a lot of people. Unless you're really in the space, you don't really tend to know what's going on. So this was an opportunity for us to then pivot a bit away from just pure traditional economics, more towards the digital economy as well. And if we wanted to be future focused as well, we realized that this is where the future is. So that's where we are now with Steers. That's a really fascinating story from so many different perspectives. Something that really stands out to me is the way that you did your MVP. So the idea is obviously if you're launching a media business, that is uh, the cost of labor is high. Uh, but the way that that the founding team got around that was by creating a network of folks who were writing anyway and get them together to contribute high quality commentary on Nigerian economics, which is in incredibly interesting. And then the bit about the website following the 2019 elections is I mean, that's just great, great civic work, right? I mean, it's providing a much needed public service. And it kind of reminds me of the origin story of Ushahidi. Ushahidi was founded, I'm, I'm sure I don't need to recount it to you, but was founded in the aftermath of the you know, election violence in, in Kenya. And they provided a much needed service around alerting people where in incidents were happening. And you provided a much needed service around providing transparency around, um, sorry, transparency to election results, which is fantastic. And then the final point around the digital economy is an apt one, because if you think about, you know, traditional reporting around economics, 
you may not necessarily lean into the digital economy as a first step, but a lot of the rhetoric that supports discussions around economic development really focus on digital economy as how developing economies will spur economic development. So incredibly interesting. But as a compliment to that, I'd like to talk about you, actually. So would you mind, within the context that you just provided, telling us a little bit about your professional journey, why you decided to join Steers, and what you currently do for the company? Yeah, perfect. So my professional journey has taken a few pivots as well. So I actually started off in project management in a tech company in the UK. So I worked as a project manager for a few years, but then I realized that I wanted to be more contributing to the strategic insight space. So I moved into strategy consulting still in the UK. And while there, I realized I enjoyed the consulting side, the strategy, the analysis, the creating insights, but I wanted to be working on something a bit closer to home and something that I felt would be more impactful. And so at this stage, around two years ago, a friend of mine actually introduced me to TJ, the editor-in-chief at Steers Business, and had said, oh, like, you know, you've been saying you wanted to get involved with something that's closer to home in Nigeria, and you wanted to be able to do some kind of like analysis in those areas. So I actually reached out to TJ, and then I wrote for Steers. So that was actually my first introduction to Steers was writing for them in the, in the Writers Network. And after that, I had kept in touch with TJ. At this point, I hadn't had any plans to move back to Nigeria yet. But then when I had about almost a year ago now, when I moved back to Nigeria and I was identifying the kind of things that I wanted to do. So I knew that I wanted to work in consulting and strategy, but I also wanted to be able to work in an area that actually made a difference. And at that point in time, I had spoken to TJ and asked about Steers. And as fate would have it, there was a role within the advisory team that was literally to the T exactly what I wanted to do and the kinds of things that I was interested in. And so what I do now is I'm a senior associate in the Steers data advisory team. So that's the team we provide the bespoke consulting services. And that ranges from anything from collecting data sets from clients, stakeholder engagement, client projects involved, mostly creating bespoke reports and insights on the areas that they're interested in. Yeah, it's mostly technology-based at this point, but it's we're sector agnostic, so it can be anything from healthcare to agriculture to energy to finance. So we do all sectors, but we focus on the digital economy and the innovation ecosystem right now. Right. So it sounds like you're helping clients develop insights through bespoke research. So maybe they'll come with specific questions or areas of inquiry that they need help to excavate and your team basically delivers those insights. Yeah, it's really interesting how sometimes, sometimes the way that these roles at startups evolve and it, it, it involves a bit of serendipity. So you're looking for X, you don't have plans to do Y, but somehow these things come together uh, as it exactly. did for you in <laughs> uh, almost Literally a perfect right position. timing, right place. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always great to, it's always great to hear those stories. And given that the work that Steers does 
is so strategic and impactful. I'm really looking forward to digging into that a little bit more. So as I mentioned earlier in the previous episode of the Trajectory Africa, we explored the size and characteristics of African consumer markets and how to enable consumption. And given that Nigeria is arguably one of the few countries on the continent that has addressable markets large enough to support hypergrowth businesses, it really does make sense to talk about Nigerian markets specifically. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, what do you think are the key characteristics of consumer markets in Nigeria and how large are these markets? Yeah. So when it comes to consumer markets in Nigeria, so like you said, so there's a lot of conversation and commentary about the size of Nigeria based on the population that we have. But however, we know that that's not the actual market size and it's really constrained by who is able to access the products and services and who actually is willing to. And when we look at those two different areas, we can then start to get a different idea of what this might look like. So who is actually able to influence this is affected by a number of different things. So first of all, I think the one one area that people tend to look at quite closely is the affordability. So a few different sources, including the World Bank, say that under about $4 a day, there's very little discretionary income and really finances are all going towards spending on necessity. And so the consumer class for any non-essential products will begin at those with an income of over $4 per day. However, if we do look at essential items such as like food, Indomie, for instance, that will have a much larger market size than something that we would say is non-essential, like maybe entertainment, or if we're looking at digital services that haven't really penetrated the market yet. But even outside of actual affordability, there are still a number of things that affect the consumer class. So if we look at infrastructure, for instance, when it comes to accessing broadband or smartphone ownership, there's only about 50% of the population, for instance, that own smartphones. There's only about 50% coverage of broadband penetration, which means that there's about half the country, which is roughly about 100 million people that can't access digital services or digital goods. Even when we even go beyond that as well, if they do have them, kind of intermingling a bit with the affordability is the ability to pay to access the internet. So a Dalberg household survey, for instance, said that about close to 20% of people in Nigeria report that they have difficulty paying for data. And we can even dig a bit deeper and see how prohibitive the cost of data is when we see that in Nigeria, in order to afford the cheapest data bundle, the average person has to work 34 hours. And globally, the average time for this is 10 minutes. Wow. And so, yeah, it's it's quite crazy when you actually look at it like that. So that th- those things significantly constrain the market size of the consumer class in Nigeria. When it comes to actually estimating what the market size is, we can use like a different a number of different things to look at. So I mentioned poverty and World Bank statistics. So the World Bank estimates that about 40% of Nigerians live below the poverty line and a further 25% are vulnerable to poverty. And that means that about 65% of the population is likely to be outside of the consumption class for non-essential items, which leaves us with only about 70 million Nigerians. If we also then take a look at unemployment as a different measure, Out of a labor force of 70 million people, there are only 31 million people in full-time employment. So if we have 
out of 200 million people, 70 million people available to work, only 31 million people get an income from employment. And even worse, if we look at it for the youth class between the ages of 15 to 34, only about 64% of the youth class is unemployed. And that's quite significant because the youth are the most likely to be first adopters of digital technology, but so many of them aren't able to consume because we have such dire employment statistics and they don't have enough consumption power. And then as well, I know this paints quite a bleak picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> when, <laughs> when we look at household expenditure as well, which is a different measure that we can look at. So outside of income, outside of employment, looking at how people actually spend when they do have money, non-food expenditure is only 43%. So once people have spent money on everything that they have to spend on food, only 43% of it is left. And if we strip out transport, health, education, rent, there's only about 10% of total household expenditure available. So starting from that 200 million, when we look at these things that constrain consumption, we end up with a much, much smaller number than it looks like from the surface. So that is about who can buy and that's the potential market size. But for specific products, we will have softer factors that influence whether or not they will buy. So for instance, for digital financial services, this might come down to trust. And we'll get into this a bit later in this conversation, I'm sure. But for instance, a McKinsey report on fintech in Nigeria found that close to 70% of people said that if they had to choose, they would choose a traditional bank over a fintech, for instance, which shows that there's not there's not a lot of trust when it comes to those areas or when it comes to e-commerce, it might be coming down to issues of logistics because, for instance, we don't have things like a postal service. So if for a lot of sellers, for instance, they might have to then either use their own logistics services that may not be able to get to certain areas and things like that. So we have a lot of other infrastructural issues or preference or consumer behavior that also affects the market size when it comes to specific products and services. Right. So that's a brilliant framework for breaking down how you go from the population numbers that everyone cites in terms of the excitement around Nigerian consumer markets to the reality of consumption. So it's ability to pay, which is constrained by <laughs> which is constrained by a large number of factors, including infrastructure, data costs, whether or not people can work, whether that work is employed or not. Yeah. And once they've paid their household expenditures, how much they have left on, to spend on non-necessities. And then willingness, like you said, is about trust. There's a way in which what you're suggesting I mean, this is much more comprehensive, clearly, but it mirrors a little bit of, of what we learned in Chasing Outliers. And so two of the key characteristics that we discovered relate to the ability of consumers to onboard fully digital solutions. And I think a lot of that has to do with some of the infrastructural and cost-related challenges that you mentioned, but it's also related to trust. So the idea is if you're used to engaging in transactions 
in person offline, what does it look like when you're now meant to book a doctor online and you're not sure how well you trust the doctor and, and whether or not you want to put your personal information on a website? And then we also learned a little bit about utility. So this speaks to your point about essential items. So if you're selling things that are not entertainment, they have to be things that actually deliver something of, of high value to consumers because they don't have a lot of, uh, of money to play with to spend on things that don't matter to them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So let's maybe talk then about B2B market. So how would you describe and characterize those and their relative size? Yeah. So B2B markets, especially when it comes to digital services in Nigeria, is actually something that we're seeing tends to be what a lot of operators and startups are addressing right now. And one of the reasons for this is that businesses, even small businesses, tend to have increased spending power. That's one reason. And the second reason is also because it's easier to leverage some of the existing networks, which I'll get into a bit later, that it already exists when it comes to B2B businesses. So just to talk about each of those in turn, we've seen recently some startups have been either pivoting away from B2C models towards B2B models. And one example of this is a company called Glupro that actually started out as a grocery store e-commerce retailer and has actually pivoted into e-procurement. They moved away from the consumer aspect into businesses. And one reason why some startups are doing this is because of spending power. So businesses are simply more willing and more able to spend money than individual consumers. And another reason for this as well is that when these operators are trying to reach scale, if you're looking at a B2C business, that actually, it means that you have to kind of put more work into attracting a mass of individual consumers. And especially like we've talked about when it comes to that trust basis, for instance, that's something that you might have to then work a bit harder for because you're not going to be able to have more face time with individual consumers. So some of the models that some, for instance, financial services providers have done is having these agent networks so that mm. even though you are using digital financial services, there is also an aspect of that human interaction as well to kind of move the needle further towards that digital transaction, but also meeting consumers where they are used to, which is the physical aspect. But then that means that you have to end up spending a lot more and deploying a lot more manpower in order to do that for consumers. Whereas for businesses, so how I will put it is basically, if you want to make a million dollars, you can either sell a thousand customers, a thousand dollar product or sell 10,000 customers, a $10 product. And there are a few reasons why this is easier. So for instance, again, like I said, deploying the manpower when it comes to distribution, to B2B, you can often leverage the existing distribution networks that these companies use rather than always having to build new ones for the consumer class. Um, when it comes to customer acquisition as well, you have to basically acquire less customers. And when you look at the lifetime value of an individual consumer versus a business, the customer lifetime value is likely to be higher. In simple terms, you're getting more bang for your buck going after businesses. So Speaking about the B2B market specifically in Africa, in Nigeria, sorry, to be precise, we have a huge informal economy. 
So the informal economy actually makes up about 65% of all businesses and employs the majority of the population. And even within that, when we look at the size of the businesses, MSMEs, medium, small, micro, small, medium enterprises employ a huge percent of the population. And so for anyone serving the B2B market, there is a huge opportunity in these markets that in theory should be able to trickle down to consumers. So looking at that kind of breakdown, it tells us a few things about the B2B market. So first of all, the fact that MSMEs are employing 85% of the population, which are small businesses. So it tells us that the B2B market is likely to be very fragmented as the majority of the businesses are small. It also tells us that they have a huge impact to the economy as well which means that there's a lot of work that can be done to help improve the productivity of these businesses, extract more value by bringing them online or digitize them, or even working as aggregators to help them decrease their costs and improving unit economics. So I can speak to some examples that we've actually seen at Steers. Great. Um, Specifically, I think you, you mentioned that you had had a previous conversation about the, was it consumer goods? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we've seen... We've seen solutions like that that are really helping the informal markets. So the independent retail market in Africa is huge. Across Africa, there are about 15 million independent retail stores specifically. And some characteristics of them are that they typically perform cash-based transactions. There's a very cluttered value chain from the manufacturer to the end seller, which makes it more expensive and less efficient, which means that these end sellers have faced a few issues Because they're on the lower end of the value chain, they have much higher costs. It means that they have, because they are transacting primarily in cash, it's much harder for them to get access to credit because there's no data on them. It means that they also struggle to scale because of that. And we've seen a few businesses, so some of them that I can name are MarketForce, Boost, that do a few different things in the retail market. So one of them is simplifying the value chain and bringing retailers closer to the manufacturer to help bring them costs. Another one is aggregating the stock orders or the stock needs of a number of retail shops. So for instance, like increasing the quantity that needs to be ordered of like, let's say Miller, for instance, and using that to go to a manufacturer buying it at wholesale prices and then selling it to the retailers at a cheaper price that they would have gotten on their own. And so because they can use these solutions, there's then more data that that can be collected on them about their transaction history, how they're performing, and general financial data that can be used as proxies for credit stores that helps to unlock access to, for instance, microloans, working capital loans, things like that. It helps them increase their productivity because there's less time spent on sourcing and collecting goods where ordinarily they might have had to go themselves to find different hawkers or different traders to get goods for their shops. It also means that they are able to save money on these goods and use that either into pouring back into their business or employing more people. And as I said, Mm. that this is something that we would expect in the long term would trickle back down into the economy. So whether that's through employing more people, increasing the value of their businesses, things like that. So yeah, there's a huge opportunity in the B2B segment in Africa and Nigeria to be able to impact then impact the consumer market as a whole. So it's something that we've heard about as well, that we, we're not 
we may not see an increase in more B2C businesses until, or rather, I will rephrase that. The B2B segment or the B2B industry and businesses are a huge enabler for B2C in the future because it basically means that where businesses are able to perform more effectively, efficiently and productively, they're able to hire more people, they're able to pay higher salaries and that means that we then will start to see a growing consumption class at the end of the day. Yes, that last point I think is one that is very underappreciated. It came up in the previous conversation as well in the sense that in as much as the consumer class is growing, so you often hear those statistics about there are more young, upwardly mobile, digitally savvy Africans that are emerging as consumers. And that is very much true. But also there's there's the idea that an important way to unlock consumption is to increase spending power. And so the connection you make between increasing spending power and enabling small businesses that hire people who can then spend more money is, is I think, a really, really critical one. I really also appreciate how you couch the discussion in terms of SMEs or small retail businesses, corner shops and such, because I think Normally, when we talk about B2B, we're talking about large corporates and large corporates because they have big Mm. pockets, but the big pockets also come with extremely long sales cycles and a number of other challenges. But from a numerical perspective and the perspective of what drives economies, you really are talking about small businesses. So from that perspective of the services that are provided to small businesses to enable them, Do you have a sense for which of those might be considered the most impactful, if you will? Are there any kind of a linchpin interventions that maybe really will catalyze the growth of these sorts of businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think something that we have seen and heard a lot, and I'm sure that will probably be a running theme through this conversation, is the ability to extend credit to SMEs because SME lending is something that hasn't quite been cracked but it's also something that we've seen as quite important to help them grow to help them just establish their businesses further so credit in general is an issue because there's a huge problem when it comes to information asymmetry and where people are looking to kind of drive expansion of their businesses. And they technically can do it if they were actually given the opportunity, if they were given the credit to be able to do this, that option is just not something that's available to them. Whereas in developed worlds, it's easier to get credit, even if not like a business loan, you can get personal credit, things like that. There are options available, but we don't have that here. Yes, the point about credit also came up in a a different conversation. And I think the point that was made is that essentially there is more credit available than there is actual cash. And the extension of credit sort of assumes that tomorrow will be better today, but I've still got to fund Mm. my needs and wants today. And so I'll take a loan from the future to enable that. Mm. But when you don't have access to consumer credit, this is something that we learned in the research as well, you end up having, because you'd mentioned the idea that consumer companies were pivoting to B2B models because of, Mm -hmm. you know, the ability to 
to pay. And then also the lifetime value of the customer. So if the customer doesn't have access to credit and has limited discretionary income, then that is a, that is an, a low LTV customer. That is a customer who is searching for deals and really doesn't care who you are, what your brand is, as long as the, as the price is low. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's certainly a rational perspective, but it just underscores the point around why lending to SMEs to become more productive and to consumers to sort of adequately fund their needs and wants makes sense. Maybe one more question to backtrack just a little bit on B2C before we, we move on, although I think where this will be a good segue to the next part of the conversation. <laughs> Apart from raising incomes, do you have thoughts on what other factors might be influential or, or useful or impactful in terms of further developing consumer markets in Nigeria? Yeah, so... Apart from developing income, I think something that we do need for consumption, so I touched on it a bit earlier, is infrastructure. Without the actual digital infrastructure that we need, and this touches on a lot of things, so this might be when it comes to, again, access to the internet or even just electricity. This could also even be when we speak about digital literacy. So even where people do have access to the internet, Are they able to actually engage with digital services in any meaningful way? They might not be. So there are a number of things. So for instance, even with consumer attitudes, so something that we had spoken about internally is like, you know, when you have these African prices of Spotify and Netflix, for instance. So the, I think Spotify in Nigeria is now 900 naira per month versus Mm. the equivalent that I know in pounds is about 12 pounds a month or something like that. But then even just apart from the price to drive adoption, you also need a change in consumers' attitudes to consumption. So we're not a high consumption society at all. So even with this, Spotify is 900 naira, arguably quite affordable. But if you are more accustomed to getting things for free by alternative routes, so for instance, maybe even just using the Spotify free version or YouTube or even then downloading music illicitly in ways that you're not supposed to be downloading music, for instance, (laughs) there may not be like a huge incentive for you to then move it because we just don't really have that attitude of consumption outside of actually having that money. So I think there are still a a few things that we need to tackle. So the infrastructure, the literacy and general consumer attitudes. Yeah, those are those are really potent insights. I remember having a conversation with a founder who was working on providing, you know, at-home internet service. And he was talking about, certainly from an operational or business model standpoint, the challenge of basically having to fund all of the infrastructure and the use of the service up front because it was a, a subscription model, but then also doing that at a cost that was acceptable to the customer while still funding the necessary infrastructure. But what he said was he had to kind of educate the consumer to consume because um, it wasn't a sort of a price per bundle type of situation. It was unlimited. Yeah. And so normally you 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 pay for what you're going to use. You don't buy a service and assume that you can use as much as you want. But given that it was a volume driven business, 
he had to have consumers use at volume. Otherwise, you know, they couldn't amortize the cost of the of the infrastructure and what have you. So this idea of re-educating consumption, I think, is very non-trivial. So yeah, thank you for thank you for highlighting. Yeah. Those. And I think even like on the B2B side as well, there are still aspects of this educating your customer as well. Because again, with some some businesses that we've spoken to as well, they've said that even apart from doing their main business, for instance, like, so a startup that might be providing, let's say, like electronic medical records, you can't just sell the medical records, because then you also have to then train the staff on how to use them as well, because they may not be right. used to using computers, or you then may have to like partner with a solar electricity company, for instance, to make sure that that particular institution has the power to be able to run the program to actually do it. So there's also that element of like outside of your core business, a lot of the times we might take for granted what we might have in America or in the US where you can just start a business and plug and play. But over here, there's a lot of things that you have to build outside of it to be able to run your core business. Right. That's another, I think, really, really useful insight in the sense that, again, something we learned in in the research is exactly what you described, that African startups often have to build supply chains or infrastructure or just enabling conditions just for their offer to be utilized. So in the case of, for example, enabling a mom and pop shop. So, so maybe your idea was just to basically do supplies to, to ensure that they have supplies. But then you end up backward integrating to, you know, sourcing to the the merchandisers and, you know, helping them to to monitor the volume of sales and what have you, not because that's what you intended to do, but because that's what's required to enable the consumption of the service that you'd intended to provide in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, exactly that. So another interesting insight that we gained in interviewing one of the founders for Chasing Outliers is how, and not to generalize it all, but you know how founders can assess the viability of new potential markets when their companies are intending to expand. So they look at things like population size, smartphone penetration, the affordability of internet access, data cost, among other things. In your view and experience, what would you describe as the key indicators of consumption readiness in Nigeria? And you've already you've already leaned into this a little bit, but please please expound. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, I'll I'll say a positive, actually. One positive side is our age demographic. So the vast majority of our population in Nigeria is young. And as I touched on earlier, young people tend to be the earliest adopters of new technology consumption. And so I think once outside of, you know, that whole issue with creating wealth and all of those things that's one thing that we have to our advantage and we've seen young people taking advantage of digital technology and digital consumption so for instance when it comes to trading cryptocurrency Nigeria last year was the second largest market for cryptocurrency trading after the US so that is an indication that There is a lot of interest in these kinds of technologies, especially when it does come to things that help to create wealth. So even when it comes to invest techs, for instance, blockchain. So I would say having a young population is something that's very, very key to this. Outside of all of this, another thing I would say as well as this is 
also seeing more hybrid business models. Mm. So I think we don't have to be stuck in a world where it's just like, you know, traditional brick and mortar and then traditional high tech as well. As we touched on earlier, there is this kind of thing where there's a bit of trust issues when it comes to digital services. We're not really sure of them. We're not really sure if we can trust them. And there can be businesses that have a physical environment, but are tech enabled. And this can be one of the ways that we start to see people adopt more digital services where it's an offline business with online elements that kind of sensitizes the market towards using these digital services. And then we can maybe slowly move them towards more fully technological, technology enabled businesses. So an example of this would be, for instance, when it comes to agriculture and investing in smallholder farmers or crowdsource lending. So there's a number of companies that do that in Nigeria and in Africa. And somebody that we had spoken to had said that even when they do provide funding to smallholder farmers, there's also an element of for instance, providing them with mobile phones, teaching them how to use this, teaching them how to maybe also through digital platforms, either with like their mobile phones, for instance, giving them training programs on how to increase their crop yield and how to get the most productivity from their farms and things like that. So you do have businesses that combine like, for instance, that tech aspect, which is training smallholder farmers to have more productive yields, but you also meet them where they're at with maybe like agents or kind of physical help as well. So I think also seeing a rise in hybrid businesses to move people closer towards an environment where they're unfamiliar with while still providing them with that physical support that they're used to. Yeah, this ties in really well with the point you were making about building infrastructure and creating an enabling environment. So the idea is that there's a way to sensitize a population, particularly if you're talking about rural dwellers mm-hmm. who may not be, let's call them, they may not be native digital users. So in as much as a lot of Nigeria is very young and early adopters, there's still a significant part of the population that isn't quite <laughs> as far along on the adoption curve. And so you can't just sort yeah. of, you know, shove a smartphone in their faces and expect them to to transact in ways that are potentially unfamiliar. There's a way in which I remember chatting to, yeah, it was actually a, a founder who, who was trying to do, it, it was an early e-commerce play in Francophone Africa. And he was just talking about, this is, this is many years ago, obviously, but he was talking about the folly of trying to replicate a non-social e-commerce experience. So in the US and the UK, you know, there's this idea of, work, of of shopping in a shopping cart. You pick up the things, mm-hmm. you put it in the shopping cart, yeah. you go to the checkout and what have you. So number one, that is not really how, I mean, there are Africans who shop like that, certainly, but I don't think that's necessarily the general experience of using a shopping cart. And, and secondly, it's more social in that you're having interactions with people around the pricing and the quality and whatever else that goes into, into the experience. And so to some degree, reimagining e-commerce with the social element that may look different than just putting items in, in a shopping cart, although in 10 or 15 years, yeah. who knows. Um, and I also recall speaking to another founder about agency banking. So the idea that, I mean, that, I mean that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But he was working on, I guess, what he was calling a mini kiosk. So the idea is that a lot of these services, whether they are banking or, or some other 
financial service probably does need some touch point, but setting up a whole branch is a very expensive proposition. So he was looking at something smaller, similar to some of these banking cafes, I guess, that are popping up where it's it's very lean, it's very small, you go and do one or two transactions and you come out. Mm-hmm. But all of that speaks to the idea of, or the reasons why, as we discovered in our research, tech touch is a thing. You can't just assume that the average consumer will take on a fully digital product for many reasons, I think all of which are quite good, (laughs) to be honest. And so in keeping with that theme, let's talk about, let's, let's dive deeper into the idea of enabling consumption. So arguably there may be certain sectors, fintech, for example, and there are certain subsectors of fintech that may be more relevant here that are critical to the development of other sectors when it comes to enabling consumption. What have you observed or learned about that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. So I'd say when it comes to fintechs, fintech is definitely probably the area of the innovation ecosystem that probably gets the most attention right now. And for good reasons, I may say it's overrated. But then one thing that we've also seen is that fintech, it cuts across every other industry. You can't have any business without money, basically. Every business involves some sort of financial services. But even within fintech, the two predominant areas are payments and lending. So together, these take up, I think about like 60% of the funding in Nigeria when it comes to fintech goes towards payments and credit. And they, and again, it's because they are huge enablers. So payments, for instance, first of all, we've seen the rise of the InterSwitch, the flutter wave the pay stacks and they're extremely important because they are the backbone for which all the other companies can sit on all of these they're building the payment rails and the payment infrastructure and it's not just for digital companies so paystack for instance also enables tax revenue collection in Nigeria. I know Mm. they work with some tax services also when it comes to I've seen as well that they also work with some schools to collect like school fees and all of these things. So it's not just the innovation ecosystem, it's enabling many businesses and industries to collect payment. So if businesses can't be paid easily, they're not going to be able to scale. It becomes very, very difficult. So a few years ago when we did have, so like e-commerce a few years ago would have been, had a cash on delivery norm, for instance, and that becomes very difficult and very dangerous. So for instance, if you're a Jumia rider that has like a Jumia brand, for instance, and you automatically become a target because people know that you're likely to have cash on you. Um, Exactly. Yeah. And this was actually one of the reasons why mobile money and PESA in Kenya took off, because even seeing that merchants, for instance, would then change their cash to mobile money overnight because banks closed before a lot of the stores did and they didn't want to be a target, for instance. Even startups, for instance, like Paga, it allows people that don't have bank accounts to be able to pay bills, to buy airtime, to pay merchants and things like that. So it it cuts across a huge area of the everything, really and truly. Even when it comes to Steers, for instance, like a very close to home example, Steers, a subscription business wouldn't be able to exist without a paystack or a flutterwave. Being able to bill and rebuild people will probably be a nightmare. Like, I don't know how you would go individually to 
to any amount of people to get them to pay on a monthly, quarterly or annual basis for your product. It just would not be possible, for instance. We wouldn't even have steers without those kinds of companies. Moving on to the credit and lending industry. So we've we've spoken a little bit about how they enable consumption, but just injured. I think we spoke about it more in terms of like the SME lending, but even when it comes to individuals, credit is really important because it essentially is a way that can enable the growth of the middle class and it increases access to opportunities that can allow people to become upwardly mobile. So even the ability of being able to split a mobile phone purchase over 12 months, that's something that we might take for granted. In the UK, for instance, I know that that happens in America as well, that you can get a mobile phone contract and split the payments over two years. You don't think about it. You don't have to pay X hundreds or thousands of pounds or dollars for an iPhone that minute. And even having that ability to not have to pay like, let's say a thousand pounds for an iPhone at the start means, okay, you can pay 50 pounds a month and you have another 950 pounds available that month to consume other goods and services as well. Right. Yeah. And even outside of that, larger purchases, for instance, when it comes to the ability to own a house, mortgages, for instance, that's the same thing. It's a form of credit. So lending and credit when it comes to individuals, it is a way to be able to access a wider reach of goods and services that you would not be able to have that can then help you to become upwardly mobile as well. Yeah. So it cuts across, they both cut across everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Those are really, really great points. So when it comes to businesses, you're, you're really, I mean, I, I hate to oversimplify, but re- you're really when you're building payments rails, enabling businesses of, of all kinds to, mm-hmm. to function, which is you know, a pretty obvious multiplier effect. And when you are providing credit both to, well, I'll, I'll focus on the consumer side. When you're providing credit to consumers, the idea is that you are enabling purchases that contribute to consumers becoming more upwardly mobile and increasing quality of life. And I think you, you, you'd you mentioned how Paystack is enabling payments that maybe one doesn't normally think of, things like tax revenue and school fees. And mm-hmm. there's a way in which I remember having a conversation with an investor about school fees in Nigeria. Now, it's very well established that Nigerian parents, African parents generally are motivated to spend money on school fees to the point where, mm. and, and basically the point he made was that the lack of consumer lending products for needs like that was a huge gap in the market because you were seeing things like, you know, parents needing to take loans from their employers to be able to pay their children's school fees. And if the willingness to pay is there, the product to support that consumption should be there, particularly because education is a key contributor to, to becoming upwardly mobile. If you can educate your kids, that gives them a chance to earn more and do more, buy a house, et cetera, than you are able to do. So excellent points there. Maybe one one small follow-up question. So in the last episode, we talked a little bit about how decaching or <laughs> digitizing payments was a huge opportunity. And I guess my question here is, how would you characterize what needs to happen to 
basically to move that along. So for example, if you take a look at the report on fintech that Ernst & Young and the Fintech Association of Nigeria put out, I think it's called the Nigeria Fintech Census 2020, it talks a little bit about the basically the regulatory focus on Nigeria becoming increasingly cashless as a way to further financial inclusion, which in turn would drive growth in digital payments. So from your perspective, what would need to happen from whatever perspective you feel like answering regulatory or otherwise to kind of mm. spur that that momentum? So one way that I guess we can look at it is actually through financial inclusion and why people might carry cash in the first place. So Athena, so they produce a digital inclusion report every two years. And when you look at some of the reasons why people either don't have a bank account or aren't digitally included, some of the reasons are like, for instance, that a bank might be maybe too far from them or that they don't have enough money or enough regular income to put in a bank. And so instead, I guess they carry cash for their everyday purchases. So for instance, the money that they make today is the money that they use to eat tomorrow. Right. So when we look at some of those reasons why people do carry cash in the first place, they see it as like there is not necessarily a necessity to carry cash, for instance. One thing, so in Kenya, they are increasingly a mobile money economy. I think it's about between 70 to 80% of the population of Kenya uses mobile money. So they're becoming increasingly cashless. And some of the drive behind this was actually government support. So a few months ago, I actually read, I think it was like the Central Bank of Kenya report on financial inclusion. And there was a huge drive to use M-Pesa and mobile money as a key way to drive financial inclusion. Whereas I think in Nigeria, we focus a lot on the banked, unbanked population rather than having other solutions that can basically help to drive this. And yeah, I think having that government support, that backing behind using solutions other than just traditional banked on back metrics as well will go a long way to helping do that. Because I think one of the reasons as well that people have been adopting mobile money is simply because it's easy and it's quick. If you don't have access to a bank anywhere nearby, Mobile money is a quick and easy solution. So I think it's something that we are beginning to see a bit more of recently. Right. So staying with the idea of financial inclusion. So I think one of the key premises behind pushing fintech, although I know there are many subsectors and aspects to fintech, but as a whole, one of the primary drivers for pushing fintech is the assumption that fintech will increase financial inclusion. So to your point about focusing on banked versus unbanked, historically, that's been a core part of the narrative that there are many people who are left out of having access to financial services because they don't have access to banks and banks are incentivized to provide those services because mm -hmm. the cost of providing last mile infrastructure is way too high. But exactly. from your perspective, how robust do you think is the opportunity for fintech to promote financial inclusion? Because there was a report released by the Catalyst Fund and Brighter Bridges about the state of fintech in emerging markets, Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And it basically asserted, among other things, that there's room to better serve those who are typically unserved, which are the rural, the poor, and often women. While this Ernst & Young report specifically focused in Nigeria, indicated that there was a reduction in financial exclusion, but there still, you know, was a lot of work to do in yeah. providing opportunities to the population. 
Yeah, I think there definitely is an opportunity. So with these like financial inclusion targets, the target was supposed to be that financial inclusion would reach 80% by 2020. It actually was only 65%. And Mm. this kind of does go to show that this drive towards bank and banked population as like the primary measure for for financial inclusion may not be something that is necessarily suited towards Nigeria. Like you said, a lot of banks aren't necessarily incentivized to provide these services to what they might consider low value customers. And fintechs, on the other hand, do have the opportunity to do a range of things, either by providing other services that help with people to have access to financial services, again, such as maybe mobile money or other things, or by making it easier to become banked. So where we do see neobanks, so for instance, something like a CUDA bank, you do not ever need to step foot in any, they don't even have any bank branches. All you need to have is a smartphone. They then connect all of your identity and data information in the background and you've opened an account with them in the space of 24 hours, for instance. So they have much lower costs of actually providing these services to customers, which a traditional bank involves more costs associated with providing services. So that brings us back in some sense to the question of a consumer's ability to fully take on completely digital products. And I think at least recently in the last couple of years, there's been a good amount of conversation around the degree to which or the way in which Mm -hmm. the COVID-19 pandemic has increased people's willingness to consume products digitally. But the question, Mm -hmm. I suppose, is whether that trend will continue or not and to to what degree. So what are your thoughts about how durable the the push toward digitized products is? Yeah, that is, it's definitely an interesting one because I think last year we probably saw a lot of commentary, a lot of reports about how COVID has accelerated the digital revolution by X years. And there were a number of things that I saw at least was that over the period where there was reduced movement in Nigeria, we saw like increases in things such as like digital banking, increase in transactions done by USSD and all of these things. And over the, um, I guess since these restrictions have eased, this kind of talk has quietened a bit. So <laughs> it may be that we have reverted. <laughs> so even outside of that, it's it's interesting to look at what kinds of things will determine whether these kinds of trends would hold true. So I think it does, again, kind of go back to some of the things that we have been talking about. It's that has COVID actually changed consumers' perception of digital services? Have we actually seen a development in the type of infrastructure that's needed to be able to sustainably provide these services? Have we also seen an increase in the type of regulations that are needed to enable these environments? So I think those are the kinds of things that will determine whether this holds true. I think as of right now, my hypothesis is that it was driven by necessity and not necessarily a change in acceptance. I mean, right now, we unfortunately don't have the data to see how much that has changed. But looking at the things that would drive these trends holding true, I think we're probably still on the same path as we were this time 18 months ago. I think maybe there is probably a bit more more chatter when it comes to specifically regulation, but it's hard to tell if that's specifically COVID related or a drive to diversify the economy. Indeed, I remember, can't remember exactly what 
I was listening to, but it was a panel, I think, kind of exploring the impacts of COVID-19 in Nigeria. And one of the investors, I think it was uh, Kola Aino, actually, who basically Mm -hmm. said as an investor, he had to be wary of COVID market fit. So there were certain companies that were getting a, a boost from, to your point, the drive toward necessity. My kids have to get educated. I have to get food. I don't know about this online stuff, but there aren't any other options. So this is the way I'll go. But (laughs) if, and it was a different founder, I think, who said, or it was an investor actually who said, if your customers are only coming to you because they have no better options, Mm -hmm. you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So the idea uh, that there is a framework, which you very well articulated. So this idea of our attitudes changing as the mm-hmm. infrastructure change, has regulation changed as a way to look at what to expect is a potent one. And I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think there may have been some shift, but I think there probably will be more reversion to the mean yeah. than we'd prefer, we, we prefer yeah. to engage with. So as we uh, wrap up here, I just want to maybe chat a little bit about fintech. So we've talked about fintech and you've made a very strong case for it as an enabler of digital commerce Mm -hmm. and and the digital economy generally in Nigeria. But what are your thoughts on what are primary enablers and deterrents for fintech as Mm -hmm. a sector? And, And maybe within fintech, if there are certain segments within it, that are more or less enabling of cons- of consumption. I know you touched on that last bit a little bit mm-hmm. already. Yeah. So in terms of the drivers for fintech specifically, so I think we've spoken about it already, that there, there is this drive to financial inclusion and how we can bridge the gap between where we are now and where we need to be to get people for people to be able to access financial services more easily. And a lot of the fintech models are designed to basically be quite nimble and to be able to provide services at lower cost than traditional financial institutions and to have a larger reach as well. But even outside of that, there are changes in regulation that we've seen that can help drive changes. Even though regulation is it's a double-sided sword, but I'll start with how it can help to enable financial services. So for instance, there's talk right now about open banking regulation. And this mm. one is quite it could be quite pivotal for fintechs because one challenge that a lot of them might face, specifically even as it pertains to credit and lending, is that there's not enough data to adequately assess the risk of customers right now. And we see this issue when it comes to it. It manifests in a different way. So first of all, traditional banks might try and tackle this issue by having extremely high interest rates to be able to mitigate that risk or secondly where we have seen smaller players like micro lenders for instance do this i've seen a lot of issues when it comes to data privacy so for instance stories where lenders will scan the address books of people that they are lending money to and if they default Mm. they will then send text messages to people on their contact list. And funny enough, just today I was speaking to a colleague of mine at Steers who had said that they got a text message that was basically saying that an old, an ex-colleague of theirs owed money, borrowed money from this lender. They owed money. This is how much they owe. This is where they live. This is their age. And the end of the text was basically, yeah, the end of the text was basically saying like, oh, 
go tell him to pay back the money, you know, <laughs> and all of that. Yeah, which was very, very, <laughs> which was shocking because although I've heard it happen, to actually hear from somebody that has received those kinds of messages from someone, it's quite, it's, yeah, ridiculous. So one hope is that open banking will be able to provide information to do accurate risk assessments when it comes to credit and lending and we can hopefully see less of that even outside of that there's ease of business regulations as well so for instance the presidential ease of business council that was set up a couple of years ago even though we have a long way to go in the past two years Nigeria has risen up the ranking by about 40 places which means that it just creates a more enabling business environment for these fintechs. However, Mm. on the negative side, we have seen with regulation that there can be a lot of inconsistency and the attitudes of regulations can sometimes seem a bit anti-innovation or anti-fintech. So in the last year alone, we've seen bans on trading cryptocurrency. We've seen bans on trading foreign stocks, which has impacted a lot of invest techs. And I think some of these issues manifest from the fact that the regulators are very far away from the actual operators and there's not a lot of collaboration. They don't really talk much. And the general attitude of a lot of the operators is that they kind of just want regulators to leave them alone. But we've seen that, you know, when you have these inconsistent regulations and things like that, there needs to be a way for regulators and operators to to meet and to be able to work together to craft a long-term vision for this sector. If not, we may just continually be at loggerheads. And apart from that, so I've also spoken about access to data as well. And then again, it comes back down to trust is a big challenge that people like you had mentioned, there's this cash-based economy that we are trying to convert to more cashless. And as I mentioned, that close to 70% of people said that they trust traditional banks over fintechs as well. And yeah, so one of the ways to build trust, for instance, might be leveraging agents, which a lot of fintechs actually do do. So I think Paystack, I don't want to misquote them, but I believe they utilize agents. If not Paystack, then a number of fintechs do. So for instance, I know for sure that Paga does utilize agents as well. So just having that kind of hybrid model where you are you are leveraging technology, but still building on current consumer behaviors, you're basically acting within the current reality as well. Yeah. So once again, you've come through with the framework, <laughs> which I really, which I really love. So in, in terms of enabling fintech, you're talking about enabling financial inclusion so that more people mm-hmm. can participate having supportive and enabling regulation. And (laughs) that example of your colleague getting text about the lack of payment from a former, it's just, it's, it's, it's just highly problematic. I'm not really sure. (laughs) There are, there are less polite ways I can describe it, but highly problematic at best. And the sad thing about it is you might think that maybe that approach was inspired by the social aspects of microfinance. So when you had in-person groups of people sort of sitting around together, they leveraged that to get people to pay because it was a sort of a community activity and you didn't want to be the mm-hmm. one letting down the 
the group. But I, mm-hmm. I guess this is where <laughs> translating offline to online can can become. <laughs> can be treacherous because shaming people via text, I don't think is an appropriate way to, um, to enforce. But in any case, you need enabling regulation, you need to have a a good sort of to create an environment where you're easing business and essentially not shutting business down using bans, you need to look after access to data, and you need to manage trust, which a number of startups are doing using agents. So makes very, very good sense as a framework. So as we close what has been a really, really educational and enjoyable conversation to me, (laughs) I'd like to, (laughs) I'd like to pose a trajectory Africa's closing question. So one of the things we're trying to do is essentially map the trajectory of African VC and tech, uh, where we're going with African VC and tech ecosystem. So based on your experience, where are we going, actually? And what are the indicators of that trajectory? Mm-hmm. So I, despite some of the things that might have seemed a bit pessimistic, I'm actually very optimistic about the trajectory of the African tech ecosystem. And I do think that it's showing a lot of potential. We are seeing a lot more attention and a lot more light being shined on innovation ecosystems and I yeah I'll talk about the indicators and why I think this so first of all we have seen a huge rise of in VC funding over the last few years so I think over the last five to six years I think a report by BCG had found that funded tech startups in Africa have grown 46 percent so the funding received by tech startups to rephrase, has grown by 46% in the last five to six years compared to an 8% global average. So compared to the rest of the world on average, African VC funding is growing really, really quickly. Secondly, I spoke a little bit about collaboration when it comes to governments and startups, but even when it comes to collaboration across the continent. So even though we can sometimes tend to speak about Africa as a region, we, we do acknowledge that it's 54 different countries with very different market sizes, very different market realities. And one thing that we see with a lot of startups is that, I mean, we've been having this market size discussion outside of the big markets, which might be like Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria. A lot of startups that start in other countries have to very quickly look at expansion opportunities outside of their home market, which can be very difficult given the Again, ease of doing business, complex regulatory environments as well. And even though, I mean, we're hopeful about the AFCFTA, so the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And the idea or the hope is that this will give greater opportunities for startups to scale and cross-country collaboration, which then makes it easier to see different regions in Africa as a market as well. Thirdly, we spoke about regulation and government involvement. Governments are starting to take notes and seeing the innovation ecosystem as a significant opportunity for development. And we're seeing this in different ways. So a number of countries are starting to look at startup acts. So Rwanda and South African governments, for instance, are speaking about startup acts and how they can then enable the startup environment. Secondly, again, a lot of African countries are finding ways that they can make it easier for businesses to operate in, which will in turn then bring in even more investment and stimulate more impactful businesses and startups. And even finally in Nigeria, for instance, the NSIA, 
So the Nigerian Sovereign Investment Authority, which is Nigerian Sovereign Wealth Fund, announced an innovation fund in which they're looking to deploy capital into the innovation ecosystem to help it grow. So I'm really hopeful. It looks like there are a lot of different players here that are basically trying to make sure that it lives up to its potential. And it's something that we are seeing. We're seeing like huge growth. We are starting, even though it's slow, we're starting to see some exits as well. So yeah, that's where I see it going. So Obeyo, I have to say, I, I feel like, although I'm not really qualified to to, <laughs> to state this, but I think our conversation today, particularly your contributions have really lived up to Steer's tagline. You have brought all of the data. I appreciate how you've couched or or substantiated your position that the trajectory of African tech in VC is positive. I particularly appreciate that Africa to global comparison, that doesn't happen very much, or I haven't heard it very often. Usually it's, you know, capital inflows have grown X year on year, which is which is incredibly helpful. But when you say that the growth of capital inflows is 46% in African markets versus 8% elsewhere, I mean, that's mm-hmm. really, really instructive yeah. and, and very, very powerful. So thank you for offering that yeah. comparison. And so the last question I have speaks to our, our mm-hmm. secondary goal, which is to crowdsource the soundtrack to or for African tech and VC. So please share your tracker song suggestion and tell me why you selected it. Sure, I will do. So this this song might sound a little bit cheesy. So the song I chose is called One Step at a Time by Jordan Sparks. So <laughs> what I would say about this is that there seem to be, you know, there's some kind of like impatience brewing about and talk about where are the exits? You know, we have the ecosystem is growing, but where are the exits? But the fact of the matter is that we are still in quite, nascent stages when it comes to innovation ecosystems and there are a number of steps that we still have to get through to get there so for instance we actually did speak to Osorman recently and he had said that he had a phrase that the thing about exits is that they happen gradually and then all at once and so what this means is that we need to take it one step at a time and look at how we can make sure we are creating good businesses that will be able to scale to the point of exiting. And at the same time, look at creating those enabling conditions as well. And we will get there. So some of the lyrics are saying one step at a time, there's no need to rush. So that's exactly it. And another thing is that if you look at innovation ecosystems outside of Africa that have developed, they have had similar trajectories. It's been like one exit here, two exits here, then the next year, 10 exits and all of those kinds of things. So I think there just needs to be this understanding that there's nothing wrong and we do just need to be taking it one step at a time. I really, really appreciate the thoughtfulness behind that suggestion. So I think I've asked this question five times at this point, and no one has given a throwaway answer. There's always been some sort of meta, uh, <laughs> metaphorical, <laughs> some type of deep metaphorical logic uh, behind the, the question. And I, I'd just like to underscore this idea of nothing being wrong, right? As in, there are benefits to be reaped, but the foundations mm-hmm. have to be created first. And, and that's exactly. what's happening, I think, exactly. successfully and aggressively as we speak. And additionally, to go back to the point about the comparison that you made in capital inflows, when you look at the numbers, the growth is fantastic. 
And so the idea that I guess what I'm trying to say, it's as important to counteract with data this idea that there's something wrong, that the continent is falling behind, that somehow the trajectory is different and or worse than what we've seen elsewhere when you've clearly stated that that's not the case. In exactly. many cases, it's it's comparable or, or better. In one of the previous conversations, there was a comparison made to, and I think you were alluding to this, to Southeast Asia, where yeah. if you look at the curves, they're almost exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> it was Jake Kendall at DFS who pointed this out, and it almost he said that it almost seemed like it was doctored, but we'll assume that that's not the case. But the, <laughs> but the curve was almost exactly the same that you saw, you know, one unicorn here, two unicorns there, then it was five, then it was 25, then it was what we're seeing now. And someone who has an analytical strategic background like you do coming from an organization that is rooted in bringing the data-driven insights, I think it's especially potent coming from you. Thank you so much, Abewa, for being here. It was a pleasure to have you as the guest artist for track four. Thank you to all of you who are listening, and I hope you'll be back for track five. We'll continue the fintech conversation with an emphasis on SME lending. See you then.